Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Reverend Hunter podcast. Tony Jones here. I'm the Reverend Hunter, along with a headset cleaner extraordinaire, Brandon. <laughs> What's happening? <laughs> Got to stay safe in these times. Hey, make you sure and I saw each other today. Yep. From a distance. You are heavily sanitized, and you are oh, yeah. on essential business. Yep. I'm sure that the governor of Minnesota would have deemed that essential business for you, well, to, media. For you to bring me gear so that it wouldn't sound like uh, I was shouting at you through a tin can. Yeah, and I think I think everybody that listens appreciates that as well. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, You looked good. You're letting your beard grow. Oh, yeah. Well, what better time? No, no better time at all, Mike. My uh, youngest kid who has the longest, well, no, my, I guess my daughter has longer hair. He, he had pretty long hair, and then he got the COVID cut. His sister went outside with the clippers and just buzzed it right down. <laughs> I'm not that bold. <laughs> but growing the beard out. Yeah. Kind of a good. Uh, I mean, I, it, it's fun for me. My girlfriend probably doesn't think it's all that great, but, you know. <laughs> and you know what? It's bad for masks. I just That's, read that today. Yep, that's very true. And I actually do have to, before I actually do any real public things, I do have to trim it because of that. Yeah, I've, so, heard, I've heard of nurses having to shave their beards because uh, their masks weren't getting a tight seal and stuff like that. Yeah, and I was I was warned that pro- big bushy beards like mine probably aren't the healthiest to have anyways as far as trapping germs and whatnot either. So, <laughs> Great. All right, I'm convinced. I'll just go shave it now. <laughs> So tell me, how's the uh, how's the remote podcasting going, man? I mean, are you, are you still at full strength with all the podcasts? We are still at full strength currently, so that's good. Um, we'll see how long that lasts. I mean, it's hard because all your other, I mean, you do you do mine and two other outdoorsy podcasts, but then your other, you've got like a dozen sports podcasts. Yep, yeah, and that's that's where it's tricky. You know, there's always there's always something to talk about in sports in general but I, I mean obviously this is unprecedented so i mean how long can we go over top 10 lists or you know speculate so it's we'll see how long we can keep doing the yeah. sport yeah 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 well i i just want to encourage anybody who's out there and looking for some more audio content you can hear all the rest of those podcasts that uh, brandon produces on the talk north podcast network so it's just isn't it just talknorth.com you got it talknorth.com and just google talk north i mean you can find it obviously on any um podcast service or anything like that so exactly and that was a great time for everybody just to sit back and catch up on their podcasts i agree i've been i've been listening to a ton of podcasts especially when i cook you know you just sit up there in the kitchen and all the kids are doing their online schoolwork they don't really want me hogging any bandwidth so i've got my podcast downloaded and i just listen to them i'm listening to a really good audiobook and yeah how about you what do you listen to <laughs> Y'all um, do is listen I, for work i'm doing the exact opposite <laughs> <laughs> yeah. since, since i've got podcasts going in my ears at all times i'm actually just i'm listening to music a lot more than uh than i did before oh, and cool. watching music videos which is not something that people no do much these days so yeah yeah, just discovering what other bands are out there right now. And that's very cool. Yeah. Well, I, I am reading a book that was recommended to me a couple years ago because it's a post-apocalyptic novel, but it also has a lot of hunting in it. And it's called The Wolf Road. 
So in a couple weeks, I'll be done with it here in a couple days, but in a couple weeks when you and I talk again, I'll give a little uh, review of the Wolf Road. That'd be great. That's a it's a cool sounding uh, title. I'll yeah, yeah, yeah. She just she just was uh, following a wolf pup around in the novel when I just put it down. I was sitting outside before you and I jumped on here. So um, anyway, look forward to that, everybody, and look forward to this conversation that you're about to hear. It's between me and Jesse Diggins, which what a great honor to have her on the podcast she is the along with her uh, relay partner were the first americans ever to win a a gold medal in the olympics for cross-country skiing which is a little shocking i guess when you think about it because the winter olympics i mean u.s is so dominant in so many sports in the winter olympics but that sport has been dominated by scandinavians for so many years and Americans just couldn't break through. And you'll remember this probably if you watch those winter Olympics, um, Jesse Diggins, the pride of Stillwater, Minnesota, lunging her foot across the finish line, winning a gold medal, collapsing on the ground. She was, uh, you know, famous for the glitter that she always wore on her cheeks uh, in those races. And she still does that. Well, she's become obviously quite a celebrity having won a gold medal and done so in such a dramatic fashion and in a, uh, you know, in, in a sport where the U.S. had never won a gold medal. And she has turned her celebrity, it, she really has turned it into great work, particularly for the EMILY program, because Jesse Diggins, and this is, Brandon, something that, I mean, I, people will probably hear the kind of the the shock in my voice, like how she could become such an elite athlete when she was bulimic. Yeah. It's it, her, her story is unbelievable too. And how candid and open she is about, you know, some things in her past that, that, that may be troubling or anything like that. Like she's really persevered through a lot of stuff. Yeah. It's amazing. And, and here's the other thing that I think people will, I hope, I hope people will jump on to like Instagram and follow her. Um, I mean, she's got a quarter million followers and you should be another one of them because she's so upbeat. She's so happy. Even during this COVID-19 stuff, her posts are always, she's smiling. She's happy. She's a very positive glass half full kind of person. I read her memoir, which we talk about in the interview, and she is she she I mean has to kind of admit it even in the interview that she's known on the U.S. cross country ski team for that positivity, and she's just a super upbeat, positive person. Yeah, that's uh, I'm I'm impressed by the way that you managed to get her on as a guest, somebody with with, with such an esteemed story. Well, and, she uh, does have a book that just came out, so she's doing kind of it's kind of I got hooked into kind of her book tour type deal, which of course now has to be online. And if you happen to be listening to this podcast on the day it comes out. I just want to put on your radar that the following day, April 7, 2020, um, she is going to have a virtual book launch party 
followed by a 15-minute Olympic gold medal workout that she's leading. Um, it's going to be it, it. We'll we'll have the we have the link in the show notes. It's sponsored by the Loft, which is a literary center here in the Twin Cities. Um, it's going to be broadcast on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram, so you can find it. You can hear Jesse talk. She, I'm sure she'll be taking questions and then lead a 15 minute cardio workout, which she's been doing some of on Instagram already. Um, so anyway, that will be a great opportunity. I'm sure it will be archived and you can watch it after the fact, if you happen to be listening to this podcast after April 7, 2020, but, uh, there's that, you know, check out her book. It's called brave enough. I really enjoyed it. Um, she has quite a story. It starts as, as the interview starts with her portaging a canoe in the boundary water. So she had me in it. She had me hooked to chapter one. <laughs> it's a perfect way to lead. Yeah, for me, for sure. All right. Well, I really do hope you enjoy it. We would love to hear from you. You can reach me on all the social medias. Just search for Tony Jones or the Reverend Hunter. We would love for you to subscribe to the podcast, to rate the podcast. Let us know who you'd like to have on the podcast. Uh, I've gotten several emails from people who've given me suggestions and they go into a spreadsheet that uh, Brandon and I share and we hope to get to all of them. So I hope you're all staying safe. I hope you and your families are healthy. I hope you are finding ways to get outdoors and to spiritually center yourself in these frightening and uncertain times. And now here is my conversation with Olympic gold medalist, Jesse Diggins. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. Hey, congratulations, because your book just came out yesterday. It was your book birthday. Yeah, thank you. It was, uh, I'd never heard the term book birthday before, but I love it. And fun fact, it, we share a birthday with Chuck Norris, so I don't think it gets better than that. <laughs> your book, your book shares a birthday yeah. with Chuck Norris? My well, book shares a birthday with Chuck Norris. That means so. that your book is going to kick some ass, I'm sure. I mean, yeah, It. I mean, I'd love to say that we did that on purpose, but it was just a happy accident. <laughs> it's super fun. I've written a few books, and it is like I have – now, I've never given birth, but I compare it to giving birth. I mean, it. it's that kind of a process, it seems to me. Um, I mean, it is – yeah, I mean, I think if I had known – how much work it was going to take to make this book come to life. I'm not sure I would have signed on to write it um, if I'm being totally honest, but it was, but I'm so glad that we did uh, because it was so, well, it was it, for a memoir. It was so cool to record the stories from my life and share those with the world in the most raw unfiltered format possible. And hopefully that's going to inspire some people. Hopefully it's going to help some people. Um, but yeah, it was, it was important to me um, to do it for all the right reasons, which is to share that it's not always the smooth linear path to success. There are bumps in the road, but there's a lot of hope through struggles. And that, you know, even if you are struggling with something that doesn't mean it's over, it doesn't have to define your life. It can just be a chapter of your life. So I'm, I'm really hoping that, that 
yeah, the the full and complete story is is going to help some people. I'm sure it will. You, you know, one of the fun things about the book, I think, is that your voice really comes through. I mean, it does feel like you are um, talking to the reader. I mean, there's there's yeah. you kind of do break this fourth wall it, that some authors don't break, where you directly address the reader, and. Um, I think that's a pretty cool thing You're, because obviously a big part of what you do these days is connect with people and encourage people. So that it's fun to see that come out in the book a little bit. Well, thank you. Yeah, I've had, I've had people describe my writing style as like conversational, um, which I love because I, I think – especially in a world of professional sports where, you know, you see someone on TV and you think, Oh my gosh, they're larger than life. I could never be like that. I think it's so important. Like you said, to break down those barriers, break down the walls and let people in and let people connect with you and who you really are. Um, because I think that's even more inspirational to show that you are just human. Um, so it's, it's really fun to, yeah, to just write the way I would talk to you if we were just sitting down and having a coffee. Yeah, totally. You know, you had me at page one because you opened the book uh, with a story of canoeing in the Boundary Waters, which is oh, awesome yeah. and amazing, and I love. Uh, I just took my – I've been to the Boundary Waters many times, but I took my youngest kid who is 15. I took him – he was 14 last summer – I took him up there and I, okay, here's what's funny is you, I mean, what were, you were 12 in that story, I think, about, about taking, wanting mm -hmm. to portage a canoe by yourself. He was 14 and it was the same deal. He's like, I want to portage a canoe. And I'm like, no, you just take the backpacks and take the fishing gear and whatever. And finally, uh, he did portage a canoe and I'll never forget it. Oh, I'll never yeah. forget that, that portage when he put that canoe on his shoulders and by God, he was going to do it no matter what. Yeah. <laughs> Just like wobbling around under the weight of it. <laughs> that for me, that was that experience of like, no dad, I've got this. I, I can do it. And I think I, one thing that I make sure I focus on a little bit in the book is how wonderful it was that my parents let me, you know, I was always like, I do it myself. I want to do it. And they were like, okay, like, all right you do it then. And I really grew from those experiences and they gave me that opportunity for growth and for learning. Um, and just by being outside, like, all right, you want to climb that tree? Okay, do it. Like <laughs> we trust you to, you know, be smart and to handle yourself. And it just fostered this, um, sense of independence and just, uh, capability. Like, okay, I can do whatever it is. If I am smart and I try really hard, then I can do it. And that sort of trust, um, yeah, develops starting from day one. Yeah. And, and to it, it's, I, I appreciate you opening the book that way too, because it roots you, it roots your entire story in the outdoors, because obviously you, you know, you've ended up excelling at an athletic endeavor that is an outdoor, you know, you're not doing your sport inside of a stadium or, or something like that inside of a gym, you know, yours, it really is outdoors. You're in the elements. Your family, it seems was, was very connected to the outdoors and raised you and your sister doing stuff outdoors all the time. It, d does that resonate with you? Is that some kind of a connection point for you? Oh yeah. It's a huge 
it's a huge part of just the core of who I am because, yeah, going back to my parents, they have this wonderful appreciation for being outdoors and, you know, pretty much every day, but for sure every weekend, they would go and get outside, whether it was taking the dogs for a walk or putting their skis on or going for a hike in a park or canoeing on the river. It was just some way to just appreciate how beautiful the state of Minnesota is. And, you know, even when we travel, like they came to visit me over Christmas this past year in Switzerland, we went out for a big family ski and we were just you know, ooing and aahing over the mountains and the sunshine and how sparkly the snow is and just not taking any of those beautiful little details for granted. And I think that's something that as a kid, I got to watch my parents appreciate nature. And so that appreciation got really ingrained in me. And so, yeah, from a young age, I was like, oh yeah, I got to be outside. And, you know, our house has tons of windows, like lots of doors opening to the outside. So you can just get out anytime to like do my homework in my treehouse, you know, like just finding ways to be outside and to connect with nature was really important to us. Um, and so then of course, yeah, picking cross country skiing as a sport seemed a pretty natural extension of that. It was like, Oh, you're telling me I get to be outside in the woods with my friends. Like this is the best sport ever. Like how could anyone not love this? Yeah. I, I wanted to ask you about something that happens that, that, I picked up in your book that I thought was an interesting um, connection and maybe explore, ask you to explore that a little bit. But you talk about the euphoria you experience, you know, from the endorphins, um, mm -hmm. from like a competing or pushing your body to this insane level, which I also want to ask you about a little bit because it's so foreign to most of us to do to our bodies, which you've done, but this, this endorphin euphoria, but what's interesting is obviously another big part of your story and really what takes up kind of the middle part of the book is your struggle with an eating disorder. And you talk about, um, a euphoric numbness that happens when you purged um, as part of your struggle with bulimia. And I just wonder, you know, as a religious person, somebody trained in religion, you know, that's something a lot of spiritual people are after too, is some kind of euphoric experience. Um, and I wonder if that if if there's any connection there in your use of that word, like you, the euphoria you felt um in the athletic pursuit but also the the euphoric numbness as you described it it during the struggle with bulimia and that struggle with control over your body and over your eating yes that's a really insightful question because i didn't even realize that that same word was used to describe both something you know, the euphoria from something that gave me so much joy and so much confidence and something that was destroying my body and ruined my confidence. But they both share that um, that the temporary state of being. Um, and I think I think there it is interesting. You know, you, you hear about a lot of like ultra runners who used to um, be addicted to something, whether it was alcohol or drugs. Like that's a very very common story. Is okay in order to get away from this. I just started running. And I started running longer and longer because it gave me that runner's high. And I found that I didn't need drugs. All I needed was running. You know, I just needed a pair of shoes 
uh, to get out the door. And then I, I found a way to connect with myself um, in a really healthy way. Um, and I think, yeah, maybe some of that is in my story. You know, I have a very addictive type A personality. And for me, a lot what my eating disorder was rooted in um, wasn't food at all, it was stress. And it was a way of coping with that stress. And so I would feel stress and pressure and the, you know, and all this pressure was, of course, self-induced, which is the worst kind, because uh, we could be so hard on ourselves. And I would feel all this pressure to be perfect all the time. And so using my eating disorder, um, using symptoms, which is for, for those not familiar, we say using symptoms because uh, it, it can be different. Some people might over-exercise, some might binge and then purge, and you can purge a number of different ways. So just the, sort of the phrase using symptoms describes those sort of, that sort of self-harming behavior that is compulsory with those uh, eating disorders. Um, yeah, so using symptoms would um so yeah wait i, I i'm sorry explain explain that to me again using that's a that's a new phrase to me using symptoms so what does that yeah. mean in the eat in kind of the eating disorder parlance yeah so in eating disorder terms using symptoms uh is is what we say for these sort of um behaviors around food that eating disorders cause. So that might be restrictive eating, that might be over-exercising, that might be binging, purging, and that can look different in everyone. So the phrase using symptoms is used to describe that sort of self-harming behavior that comes with eating disorders, or that can come, I should say, with eating disorders. And um, and so for me, uh, with bulimia, you know, those behaviors were particular to that, you know, um, addition of my eating disorder. But what really, what I was after was that, uh, that, that numbing of the, all the stress that I felt because really I didn't know how to handle emotions. I didn't understand how that I could be stressed and still live with it, or that I could be sad or scared or angry or upset and live with those emotions and let those emotions sit with me without having to destroy me. Um, so I, I don't know if this makes sense because one of the hallmarks of eating disorders is that they don't make sense. Um, but for me, I was after that numbing of any emotions because then I just didn't have to deal with them. And suddenly, you know, through using symptoms, I was just totally wiped, totally drained. It felt like I'd had the flu, which, you know, sort of self-induced the flu. And I suddenly didn't have to worry about being perfect because I just couldn't feel anything. So in a, in a very unhealthy way, I was after the runner's high, but it turns out you don't need an eating disorder to feel that uh, endorphin rush. All you need is a pair of shoes or a pair of skis um, and, or a bicycle. You know, it's, it was, you know, skiing. I still feel that rush, but now it's not to cover anything up. It's just a bonus. So really what my treatment at the eating disorder did was it, it taught me how to handle emotions and how to name the emotion. You know, I'd feel stressed and I wouldn't understand why I was stressed or that I was stressed because I was worried about something. And it taught me how to, how to sit with the emotion and to let it be and observe it without feeling like it was going to tear me apart. And those were really just good life skills. Um, but it was what I needed to, to turn to my eating disorder and face it head on and say, you know what? Uh, you were a coping mechanism at one point but I don't need you anymore. 
I don't need this. I'm able to face this in a healthy way. Now I understand that when I am stressed, I can take my dog for a walk. I can talk to my mom and dad. I can talk to my boyfriend. I can call up a friend. I can play a game. You know, like there's so many really healthy outlets for stress that don't involve self-sabotage. Um, so yeah, it was, it was a long, uh, painful process to come to that conclusion, but I'm a better person for it. Yeah. I was, I was a youth pastor for a lot of years and definitely dealt with kids, you know, kids who would cut themselves. And it was, it's one of those strange paradoxes because they'd say, I cut myself in order to numb the pain. So I'm like, well, you're causing pain to yourself in order to numb another, you know, a, an emotional kind of pain or spiritual or psychological kind of pain. So it is that odd right. paradoxical thing that I think I really appreciate how you do it in the book. I mean, you take a long time to really explain that journey of how you got. And it sounds like that year when you were 19 was really the the crucible. I mean, it's in so many ways that year of your life was is the crucible for who you've become both in the eating disorder and also you know making the decision to not go to college like everybody else um in your town was doing and instead pursue this skiing dream and stuff like that and even going you know the for people who haven't read the book you start at the emily program in in um like an outpatient deal and it just doesn't quite work for you and you end up going there for a period of time. And what was that, you know, what was that like at that moment? Some people describe those kind of moments as rock bottom kind of moments. Is that something that you resonate with? Yeah, you know, I think I had to hit a, a bottom of sorts. I mean, it definitely could have been much worse, but at the same time, our pain is our pain and we're not comparing it or judging it to anyone else's, right? Like if you're going through pain, you feel that uniquely. But I think I had to hit a certain level for myself to realize this isn't going to work. You know, like this is not the answer. This is not how, uh, a, a way that I can deal with emotions and presence, uh, pressure and stress. This isn't, this isn't a viable path for me. Um, and I also, you know, I was, I was new to the idea of accepting help and also, you know, eating disorders, I felt were very stigmatized. And that's part of why I talk about it in the book, because I want people to be able to find some compassion and some understanding um, and to understand what might be happening in the brain of someone who's struggling with an eating disorder or really any sort of um, mental well-being. But I felt like it was my fault. I felt like it was a behavior issue. I didn't understand that it is a mental illness. Um, and so I just was so hard on myself and was really resistant to help and feeling ashamed and guilty all the time. And I had to really get past that in order to say like, no, like if you fall and you break your leg, you're not going to say, nope, I, I got this. I'm going to heal this on my own. I don't need a doctor. I don't need help. You would say like, oh, I'm going to go see a medical professional because I'm hurting and I need help in order to heal. But sometimes when those hurts are on the inside, we're really scared to say, I'm hurt, I need help. Um, and so I'm, you know, what I really hope is that those few chapters of the book will help people um, who maybe need to reach out for help realize that it's okay. It's actually very brave to ask for help because it's the hardest thing ever, but 
you shouldn't have to go through the hard things in life alone because yeah. And chances are someone's going to understand you. You're not the only one who's ever felt this way. And in the moment it feels like you really are alone and you're the only one who's ever gone through this particular struggle. But really there's a, unfortunately there's, there's a lot of people who have been through this struggle as well. And so yeah, just realizing you're not alone. Yeah, I was. Yeah, I I was a police chaplain for about ten years, and I'll never forget the day that I had to go with a police sergeant and you know knock on the door of a house and tell a mother and father that their daughter had died of an eating disorder. Her her you know she her heart had stopped. And it was, uh, it was, uh, you know, it, it was just, a, it, it's burned into my memory because they, I mean, uh, what reminds me of it is you, this, this idea of being alone. They told the story of the dad had flown, the, the girl had graduated from college maybe a few months before and she'd gotten a job in Atlanta and she, they'd flown from Minnesota down to Atlanta. The dad had to try to see his daughter because he worried, he was worried just in very similar ways that you're mom in the book is noticing things and saying, I think we Mm -hmm. need to go to the next level of help. He flew down. She wouldn't see him probably Mm -hmm. because, you know, she knew she was in trouble too, or didn't like the way that she looked. Or if if he had seen her, it would have been obvious what, what dire circumstances she was in. So he spent a week in Atlanta, not seeing his daughter and then flew back to Minnesota and with a couple and a couple more, weeks she had died of it so it's i understand the seriousness of it and good for you and good for your parents for you know getting help and now helping others it's it's an amazing gift i think that you're using your you know celebrity in athleticism to help people with this non-athletic issue really this as you call it a mental illness so kudos. Right. And I think it's so important for people to understand that, yeah, it is going to be really, really hard for someone with an eating disorder to accept help. Probably not in every case, but most likely there is going to be a a huge pushback. Um, because at that point in their life, they probably think that they need their eating disorder in order to cope, in order to survive, in order to make it through the day. Um, and I think early help is super key. It's, I mean, not necessarily a death sentence if you get help later on, but the earlier friends and family can stage an intervention and say, nope, nope, let's, let's, let's head this off. Let's get professional help um, from, from a medical professional trained in eating disorders. The better your chances are of a swifter recovery, um, a healthier return to, um, to a, a better, uh, relationship with food and with yourself. And so that's really important for me to say is that it's, it's so important because these are life threatening illnesses and it's, it's really scary, but I think people do need to understand the absolute gravity of the situation. It's not this, uh, it's not a behavior issue that affects only skinny white teenage girls. You know, this is a mental illness that can affect anyone regardless of gender or age or race or any of those um, any any of those restrictions that sometimes people think, oh, that doesn't apply to me. This can affect anyone, and so I think it's really important that we realize this is life threatening. It is a big deal, and it needs to be uh, treated as soon as possible. Um, 
because yeah, we want to protect the people that we care about. Yeah. Um, absolutely. I, I, changing the topic a little bit, it, um, I want you to tell us about the pain cave because oh, yeah. <laughs> really Jesse, you are like, it, it, it really is foreign to the vast majority of us. I thought I'm really going to prepare for this interview. So I went to a spin class this morning. So I was oh, really, nice. I got up into, you know, I got up into L4, right to the edge of L5 there for maybe a few seconds. But I mean, what you describe in the book is it's just so out of my framework of what it means to live a daily life to push your body so hard for such an extent for years on end to get to the to get to the the heights that you've gotten to i thought it was interesting that the first time you entered the pain cave was it it was a, a meet against forest lake a high school meet against forest lake high school was that right yeah, I was I was pretty young. I must have been in oh gosh, like ninth grade or some somewhere abouts. I was young. I was in high school, and um, I was so focused on being because uh, I was the anchor for the relay. And I was so focused on getting every drop of energy in my body out onto the snow for my team that I just blew right past the normal like warning signs that your body sends your brain of like, okay, slow down. We're going to blow up here. And yeah, I just went right by those. And I remember like my vision changing, like everything got this pink tint to it. And sometimes you hear things differently when you're that deep in the pain cave. And, um, I should explain, I guess, uh, for people listening in the pain cave is the nickname that many endurance athletes give to that place where you are just absolutely like giving it your all. And you've like, it's like if you were running uphill as fast as you can and your body started to, you know, it was harder to breathe. Your legs were flooded with lactic acid. It feels like you could barely move your legs and you find a way to keep going. And that's the like once you push through your limits and you just keep pushing and pushing and pushing and see what's left. Um, but for me, it was really cool because I, you know, laid in the snow, just like gasping, you know, thinking, oh, all right, this is it. I'm going to die um, after that race. And then, you know, 30 seconds later, I was like, oh, I'm okay. Like I can go that hard and survive it. And I remember thinking, what have I been doing all my life? Like I've been really missing out on this entire like next level of racing ability. And I felt like I'd unlocked this secret, you know, to like, oh, if I just keep pushing that hard, I can keep going. And I'll say this with the caveat that sometimes it doesn't work. Sometimes your body just keels over, you know, <laughs> and, and you just, you blow up and you end up losing a lot of time in a race. Um, so charging like a mad person right out of the gates is not always the best strategy um, for the best time of day performance. But I will also say that it's, it's a really um, interesting ability that I've seen in a lot of athletes, especially endurance athletes to just go into a race with the attitude of, okay, this is going to hurt, but I'm ready for it. And it's not trying to avoid the pain. It's trying to just embrace the pain and move with it and through it because you know that there is a finish line and you know, it doesn't last forever. And so if you can get yourself to that point, you know, you'll be so proud of your performance because you'll never have to look back and wonder what if I just tried a little bit harder. 
Like, what if I hadn't been afraid? And what if I had just pushed a little bit more? And for me, that's really what gets me to that place is because I hate the feeling of looking back and going, I don't know, maybe I could have won the race if only I hadn't been scared to get the most out of myself. And so I try to race every time I race um, and never have to ask myself that question. I don't ever want to ask the what if question because I want to leave it all in the course the first time. And so for me, that makes the pain cave absolutely worth it. I'm ready to go in the pain cave every time I race because I know that I'm going to feel really proud of myself afterwards for what I was able to push through. You know that most human beings avoid pain. <laughs> yeah, like, and, uh, that's, that's what makes cross-country skiers especially oh interesting. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> that's what our sport is based Well, I mean, on. even for you to just say now, like you went into the pain cave and you're like, oh, most people say, I never want to go back into that cave. That I want to avoid that cave the rest of my life. And you're like, oh, I can go into the pain cave and it actually helps me win the race, which is that it seems like, you know, you write about a lot of time, especially I think earlier in your career or when you're first being invited onto national teams and you're looking at your teammates and saying to yourself, I don't have the right kind of body to compete at the super elite level. And you do, I mean, for those of us non-athletes, like you do hear about that, you know, um, you hear about, oh, that guy's got the perfect body for swimming or this per- look at that speed skater. That's a speed skater's body or something like that. And But it seems to me more that for you, your it was the psychology or the, the strength of your character or your mind that got you to that level. At, you know, it, maybe it wasn't the perfect body type if I, if I was reading that right in the book. Yeah, I think – what was interesting is for me when I was first getting out of the national team, even though I was um, becoming healthier again in my relationship with food and myself, you know, having been through treatment for my eating disorder, I still was lacking some pretty basic confidence. Um, <laughs> and it took a long time to build that back. Um, and so I would look around and think, oh my gosh, like I'm too short, but also I'm too tall. I'm, you know, I'm too strong, but also I'm not strong enough. You know, it was, it was, it was a a reflection of that time of my life where I was wondering, where do I fit in? And all I want is for people to like me, you know, like just like me. I just want to be part of the team. I just want to be part of this. But what's very cool is that eventually I came to the realization like, oh my gosh, cross-country skiing is like the unicorn of sports because there is no one certain body type that succeeds. Truly. And I'm not just saying that because it's what I want to believe. It actually, you look around the World Cup and you see people on the podium, you know, on the, at the highest level of sport imaginable. And there is the widest variety of body types possible. And I think that is so beautiful about this sport because it's, it's not like, oh, you won't succeed because you weren't born with these attributes. Um, and I think part of that is, as you say, it's the psychology, you know, it's, it's, it's a little bit more about just your engine rather than your specific body type and, and more about your mind, you know, like, are you willing to put in the work? Are you willing to push yourself into the pain cave? Are you ready to work on the technique and have that focus and that drive to be as efficient as possible? And it's more about that than, 
are you extremely tall or are you extremely short or, you know, whatever it is. And I think that's one of the things that I love the most about this sport is you can, you know, look at any kid on the street and go, you could be very good at this. Uh, and that, that has this amazing confidence that it brings. What, what is it for those of us who aren't like super um, knowledgeable other than watching and cheering on your team, what, what's a coach looking for in an anchor leg as opposed to other legs of a relay? Because it seems like you, since you were in high school, have been chosen more often for that anchor leg. And what, like, what is that? What's the difference between that skier and another skier in a different part of the relay? Yeah. Um, well, so for listeners who haven't yet gotten to see a very exciting cross-country relay, um, on the World Cup especially, it's it's a four-by-five-kilometer format for women. So you have four legs. Um, each skier skis five kilometers. And the first two legs are classic. And the second two are skate. So they're totally different techniques, which is very, very exciting because it really shows the depth of a team. You know, can you come up? Oh, yeah. Different skis, different poles, different boots. Same sport, same same basic attributes of the sport. But uh, it's sort of like with alpine skiing, you've got speed and you have slalom. Like they're different things, um, but sharing some basic uh, similarities. And so what's really cool is that you need the depth of team. You know, can you come up with four women who can, you know, we need two classic skiers, two skate skiers, and you're all skiing the same distance, but different legs require different sort of strengths. Like the scramble leg, leg one, you're starting in a mass start. So you have to have the guts to hold your line. Even when people are stepping on you, cutting you off, maybe stepping on your poles, there might be some crashes because, you know, unlike track and field with cross-country skiing, you don't have a lane that you have to stay in. It's a little bit of a free-for-all, which makes it very exciting spectating. Um, And then legs two and three, you might be working in a pack, but you might not. And so those legs, you don't know what you're going to get and you have to be ready for everything. And a lot of the time, it's someone who's ready to just go out there and hunt people down and make up as much time as they possibly can. And with the anchor leg, uh, it's a little bit of a mix because you, you, again, you don't know what you're going to get. You're not really sure where you're going to be tagged in, but you're going to hunt people down, get in the best spot possible, and then come up with a strategy on the fly to try to beat whoever you're with in the final sprint out. So you have to analyze your skis compared to their skis. You have to decide, okay, you know, I know this person I'm racing against, or maybe you don't, you have to take a guess, but what are their strengths compared to my strengths? Do I wait until a sprint out? Do I try to drop them with a K to go? How am I going to win this? So the other legs, you're going for pure time, like get as many seconds for your team as possible, which takes a lot of guts and a lot of heart. And with the final leg, you're going for time, but also you're going to win it. And so you have to find a way to get across that finish line first um, based on your strengths in the moment. And so for me, I think what I would look for in choosing an anchor leg is someone who uh, performs well under pressure, who can make strategic decisions on the fly, who has a good finishing kick, but also enough endurance to hang on for 5K. Um, 
So it's a little bit of a mixed bag, which I think is why I anchor relays a lot, um, simply because I have the experience from doing it many times. And with the experience comes the tactical knowledge um, and the knowledge of myself and what I can do and what I can't do. Um, but also uh, having done it many times, like I, I'm sort of more of an all-around athlete. I sprint and I do distance. Um, and so I have the finishing kick capability, but also the endurance to try to hang with people if I'm tagged in the pack. Yeah, it, it's funny because like uh, that, you know, your Olympic gold medal race, to, it looks to me like you're behind and you make this incredible comeback, right, at the very end and you lunge and you win the gold medal. But w reading the book, it's kind of like that was your plan. Like you you knew you were – like you saw an opening um, and you went for it and it doesn't ever seem you, – you don't write about it in a way like – I was behind. Was I going to be able to come back and win? It was like this race was unfolding exactly like we had planned this race to unfold. Which, but to a viewer, you watch it, and you know, like twenty seconds from the end or whatever, you're still in second place, and then suddenly you're in first place at exactly the right moment. Yeah, that was so much fun to share with readers the tactics and the strategy behind it because there is so much going on that you, you can't see captured on film, both behind the scenes with the wax techs and the coaches, but also even as you're watching it, you know, it's like there's no way of knowing what this racer is thinking. Like, are they behind on purpose because they're drafting? Uh, are they behind because they don't want someone else to slingshot them? Are they in front because they're trying to control the pace and block somebody else? You know, like there's so many decisions that go into it. And yeah, sometimes you're just tired. <laughs> and so sometimes that's why you're behind. But um, for me, it was really fun to share just the frame by frame of that race in particular and say, here's why I moved when I did and how I did. But um, earlier in the race, you, you pulled out in front which it sounded like was a decision your coaches affirmed that you were going to pull out and try to string out the group. And then I think you used the phrase, you ease back on the gas pedal, but then obviously right at the end, you had enough gas in the tank, as it were, to, to pass, you know, pass your last competitor and win. Yeah, it was, um, Team sprinting is so interesting because it's, you know, three laps um, per partner, six laps total. So you sprint for, you know, about two minutes and 30 seconds, and then you're jogging around resting while your partner sprints. And so each lap has its own tactics and strategy and plan. And for me, you know, I knew I was going against arguably the best sprinters in the entire world that were anchoring Norway and Sweden. And they're amazing athletes. They each won um, medals, uh, before. And so, um, I knew that they were of course going to have an amazing finishing kick. So my only shot was to tire them out to even the playing field by making sure that, you know, my endurance was given a chance to work for me. Um, and so early on it was, it was behooving me to push the pace, um, and to make sure everyone was going fast instead of kind of sitting back and saving energy for an epic sprint off. So that way, when we did come down to the sprint, I, you know, had faith that my sprint capabilities were going to match the other girls because I knew that I didn't tire out easily just because of the sort of hybrid sprint distance gear that I am. Hmm.
That I mean, I I, I won't even ask you to put it into words to what it must have been like to win that medal because we've all seen the replays of it. I remember when it happened. Min- all, Minnesotans were bursting with pride <laughs> at your accomplishment, oh. <laughs> for sure. I mean, it's really just incredible. Even to, I w- watched it again this morning on YouTube, and even watching it again, you just get chills of what you've done, especially having read the book and realizing the drought that American cross-country skiers had had for medals. Um, it's really... An, an incredible accomplishment. Um, so I see, I'm not going to even ask you to, people can read the book if they, if they want, because you do, you know, even in the book, you're like, everyone's asking me, what's it like? What's it like? And it, it must just be almost too much to take in. Well, here's what I wonder though. Um, it seems to me this, all this happened so quickly, like in 10 years, your life, completely changed in in ways that people who take more I've got two kids in college you know they're taking the more traditional route now and it's a slower kind of route and I wonder sometimes these things happen to you like you're skiing on a high school team and then all of a sudden you're getting an invitation to go to a national team and then suddenly you're flying around the world and then suddenly you're you know coming back after an international trip and meeting your AP teacher before school just to try to keep caught up on the work. It seems like these things all happen so fast that maybe there wasn't time that you're sitting back thinking, is this, who, who am I in this and, and what does this mean for me? So I wonder how you have stayed grounded personally, spiritually. Like, how have you maintained your sense of self? in this really whirlwind decade of, of your life? You know, I love that you asked that because nobody in all the interviews I've ever done, no one's asked me that ever. Um, and it's such an insightful question because it would be so easy to kind of lose yourself because you're just flying through life. Um, you know, I mean, I wasn't, you know, I rarely sleep in the same bed for more than two weeks in a row anymore. You know, you're just sort of, it is hard to feel like you put down roots anywhere. Um, and for me, I think uh, really it was the people that kept me grounded. I think this sport attracts some really outstanding people. And I've had the incredible good fortune to have amazing teammates who I get to talk about a little bit in the book and, and how they really became like my family on the road. And of course my parents back at home were super grounding. You know, they'd say, you know, we're proud of you, but we're proud of you because you try really hard, not because you win. You know, it was never about the results. It was never about accolades. It was about, well, are you giving it your best? Are you being a good teammate? Are you mentoring the younger kids on the team? Good. Okay. We're proud. And so it was really cool that they kept it. For me, it was, they, I think they kept it about all the right things. Um, and so pride was distributed based on all the things that you would feel proud of in any area of your life, you know, like, are you giving it your all? Are you working hard? Are you being a good person? Okay. We're good then. Um, and for me, like, you know, it, it was interesting. Like I, I felt like I did a lot of my growing up on the road and by traveling around the world, it was a very unique education. Um, <laughs> but it was cool. Be- it was cool because 
I got to see things from a very different perspective. And so I realized over time, you know, what I wanted to do with the athletic platform that I was starting to build and starting to have as a result of racing. And so I started to realize, oh man, like traveling around the world, I'm really passionate about girls in sports and girls feeling confident in sports. And I'm really passionate about eating disorder awareness and recovery. And, you know, I'm really passionate about uh, people feeling ownership of climate change and, and feeling responsibility to, you know, take small and big steps to, you know, recycle and just be a good citizen of the planet. And, uh, you know, there's all these things that I realized, okay, I have this passion for, I'm seeing this played out in different communities around the world. And I feel like through athletics, I have a way of bringing extra voices to that um, and bringing more attention to these things that I really care about. And so that was, that was really cool because um, yes, I had a very different uh, experience, um, you know, from the time I was maybe 15 through now, but also I wouldn't trade it for anything because even though I felt at times, you know, like in a little bit of a whirlwind, it was very cool and it helped me realize who I am and what I care about. And those friendships with skiers from around the world made me realize that we're all so much more alike than we are different. Um, and it just sort of, yeah, opened up my view on a lot of different things. Let, one one last question that I'm interested about, because again, it's... It, you know, the vast majority of us are not elite athletes. How, when you're an elite athlete and you're so successful as a result of how you can push your body to its limits, how do you um, decide when you can't do that anymore? Like how, how, how do people at that echelon of athletic performance that you're at, because of course a human body you know, inevitably ages and breaks down and things happen. Um, and you, we do see in the news elite athletes really sometimes struggle to hang it up or to know when it's time to transition to the next chapter of life. Do you think about that? Is that something you and your family talk about, you and your boyfriend talk about? Or like how, you know, or in your community of elite athletes, there must be some conversation about that. Oh yeah. And you're absolutely right. It is a huge struggle. It's really hard. You know, it's like you, you dedicate your entire life to the pursuit of excellence in, in your chosen sport. And then suddenly, whether by choice or not, it is, it is time to retire and find something else. And, you know, I think we, we all hope for the best case scenario, which is that you can come to the conclusion yourself that it's time to move on to the next adventure and you hope that it's not a forced retirement due to injury or, you know, some extenuating circumstance, but it's a conversation that we do have on our team because we're aware of, you know, the potential, um, uh, well-being and mental struggles of, of retiring and moving to an entirely new chapter of your life that is so different in every way than what you spent the last 10, 15 years of your life doing. Um, so I, I do talk about it with my parents and my boyfriend and my teammates. And I think for me, the thing I've, I've always said is, you know, as long as I'm loving what I'm doing, I'm going to ride it out as long as I can. You know, as, as long as it's fun, as long as I feel like I'm taking care of myself and that I'm healthy and that I'm passionate about what I'm doing, then why not? Right. But if there comes a day when I'm like, you know, 
I really want to spend a year in one place or, you know, like if there comes a day when I really am saying, you know, um, the cons outweigh the pros of this. If I, if I'm not finding this joy and this drive to compete and, um, if suddenly it becomes hard to sacrifice different things in order to make training and competing the priority, then it is time to find the next chapter in my life. And while I'm not exactly sure what I'm going to do yet, it's been so fun with projects like writing this book and realizing that, oh, wow, I have skills to offer the world that don't reside completely upon my body. And um, these are really fun projects. I find that I love doing other things, um, like working with my sponsors on global ad campaigns. I love that. It's so cool to find a way to get more people excited to get outside, you know, like these sort of things I really enjoy. So I'm not nervous about the future. It's more that I'm excited for someday. Um, I hope to find something that I'm as passionate about as skiing and something where I can find um, people who appreciate me for me. Because I think the biggest thing that sometimes athletes struggle with is that all your validation comes from what your body can do. And so it's like, you're winning, great, we love you. And you start to worry that, you know, what if people, what if I stop winning? You know, will people still like me? And will people like me for me and not my athletic accomplishments? And I think for me, it's been so important to have that grounded feeling in my family, my friends, my boyfriend. And I know without a doubt that they love me for me and not for, you know, any sort of results at all. And so I know I'm always going to have that my entire life, whether I'm racing or not. And I think that that support really can help ease that transition. That's cool. Yeah. I, yeah. That's great to hear. And I guess I do have one more question because we're a super dog friendly podcast around here. Tell us about your dog. Oh, I love dogs. <laughs> we, um, I'm obsessed. In case people, That's if you follow all, I, me on Instagram, yeah, you there's will a lot of doggy, a lot of doggy photos on Instagram. That's awesome. <laughs> oh, I just have to share because they're so cute. Um, right now we have two French Britneys, oh. Leo and Lucy, and Lucy's a ten week old puppy. So, oh just my gosh, the milky breath, fuzzy fur, extra skin. She, you know, just That's like awesome. everything you love about puppies. Um. And it's so fun. We've always been a dog family. Um, so, yeah, we, we usually try to have two dogs because it's so fun to watch them play together. Yes. So right now, Lucy's favorite thing is to run underneath Leo and just, like, run laps, like, doing figure eights, like, running underneath his legs while he, like, kind of, like, play growls at her. It is so adorable. <laughs> That's cute. So. That's yeah. awesome. Endless entertainment. Good. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to be on and best of luck with the book. I think you're coming to back to Minnesota for a book release party. I'm sure it'll be a huge celebration uh, and congrats. Oh, thank you so much. It's been really fun being on the podcast and it's so fun to share the sport with people because a um, little plug for the sport. It's one of those sports that everyone can do. You know, like you take a one hour lesson and it's kind of like, kind of like learning to run, you know, like everyone can do it. It's, it's actually incredibly low impact, low injury risk. So I hope that people find a way to enjoy winter um, and to get out there and get out on the trails with your friends, enjoy nature, try a new sport because it's, it's pretty cool. I'm biased, but I love it. Hey, if, if, if it brings, if, if it brings people even a fraction of the joy, it seems to bring you, I think that's a great advertisement for the sport. So 
thank you. <laughs> oh, thank you. 